History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 57, Xerxes at Home. Before we get into the episode, I want to talk about something very exciting that might explain why I haven't done things like answer my emails or post as often as I intend to lately. See, the truth is, I've been double-timing you. I've been cheating on the history of Persia with another podcast. This past month, I've been putting together a few episodes to help out the Oldest Stories podcast. They were at risk of completely running out of their backlog of episodes while the host was completely without internet access, and I volunteered to step in and fill the gap. For those that don't know and don't already listen, the Oldest Stories is a podcast telling the stories of the Bronze Age Near East. It starts way back at the beginning of history with the invention of writing and the myths of ancient Sumer, before getting into the political history of places in ancient Mesopotamia like Sumer and Akkad, and eventually expanding out into Syria with Mari, and down the Levantine coast and up into Anatolia with places like the Hittite Empire or the Mitanni. Of course, conspicuously missing from that list is ancient Iran and the Elamite culture, which is where I come in. Starting September 8th, there will be a short run of weekly episodes on the Oldest Stories podcast 
where I am going to be talking about the Elamites as a guest host. I am personally really excited for this, and if you want to know about what was going on in southwestern Iran, in Persia, before the Persians, I started all the way back at the beginning of the Bronze Age, and am working my way forward to the Bronze Age collapse. Elam shows up in history early, especially even familiar places like Susa and Anshan, where Cyrus the Great was from. They literally appear in the story of the invention of writing at the beginning of history. So go check that out. You can find the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net or wherever you get your podcasts. But skipping forward 3,000 years or so to the reign of Xerxes... Last time, I covered political developments inside the Persian Empire, both where Persian control lapsed completely in the face of Greek victories, and deeper into the empire where the Greek war stirred up new political leadership in the west while leaving the imperial core relatively unaffected. But that does not mean that the core did not see change under Xerxes' leadership, only that it was not dependent on the developments in Greece. In Babylon, much-needed administrative reforms were enacted to strengthen Persian rule after the region's final Great Rebellion, but these changes pale in comparison to the physical growth of Persepolis. Thus far in Persian history, every king has had two important goals, to expand the empire's borders and to build phenomenal palace cities. Cyrus the Great, of course, had Pasargadai, Cambyses both continued his father's efforts and oversaw the importation of artisans from across the empire to build palaces and fortresses in Parsa and Media. Bardia's time was too limited to do much, but Darius made up for that with his personal love of palace buildings. A new residence was started in Babylon, the palatial complex of Persepolis was founded, and the Grand Palace at Susa was built entirely under Darius's directive. Susa was by far Darius's greatest accomplishment, even if Persepolis furnished the most sources for modern scholars. The last time we went on a tour of the city of Parsa was in episode 30, coincidentally also the last episode before getting into all of this nonsense with Greece. In terms of narrative, that puts it somewhere around 500 BC. Well, it's been about 30 years since then, with more than half of that in the reign of Xerxes, and Persepolis is now a very different place. When we last toured the palace complex, it was clearly going to be impressive, but you could hardly call it impressive at the time. Darius had his builders level out and start to fortify a hillside rising out of the Iranian plateau. In his life, the monumental staircase that brought you up from the surrounding landscape up to the palace complex was never entirely finished. In Darius's time, an access stairway was built on the south side of the platform, and those unfinished stairs would have led up to the foundations of a gatehouse maybe with the walls beginning to rise above ground level, but beyond that, there was nothing but open ground, and even some of the fortifications remained incomplete to the north. To our right, and the south, was the Apadana, one of the only completed structures on the terrace. It was a vast throne room, built as a hypostyle hall, a huge open room lined with columns in rows throughout the building. 
Each column was smooth limestone until you reached the top, where they were crowned with bulls' heads back to back. Fun fact, if you're a fan of Avatar The Last Airbender, the Fire Nation throne room is modeled on the Persian Apadana. The only other completed structure in Darius's time was in the far southeastern corner, obscured by the Apadana from our perspective at the top of the stairs. This was the building we typically call the Treasury, but perhaps it's best to think of it as an office building. This is where the administrative apparatus of scribes, clerks, rations officers, and messengers press stylus to clay to record the Persepolis fortification tablets and all of the events they record. The final structure at Persepolis in this time was a small, still incomplete royal palace immediately south of the Apadana, about one-sixth the size of the actual throne hall. The reign of Xerxes changed that dramatically, completing Darius's many in-progress projects and filling up most of the southern half of the flattened terrace. If we reimagine ourselves approaching from the surrounding plain, we enter at the west. In front of us, tall retaining walls topped with wood and stone fortifications loom over us, and a ramping staircase runs alongside the nearest wall. Above the fortifications, we can see the roofs of new, distinct buildings. One is clearly held up by many columns. We ascend the short, wide steps, flanked by walls of smooth limestone, first facing south, then turning to ascend facing north. At the top of the stairs, we are confronted by Xerxes' first contribution to the city, a massive freestanding gateway. The inside of the gate would have been decorated, probably painted, but before we even get there, we have to pass by two massive Lama Sioux. These were mythical, sphinx-like creatures with a long history in Near Eastern artwork. Since early Assyrian times, they had been used as a sort of guardian angel. The crowned head of a man with a long, curling beard sits atop the body of a lion built into the front gate. Between the legendary beings are gleaming bronze doors, held up by bronze posts rather than the structure of the building itself. These gates are open to us, but as we continue through the complex, other gateways might be closed off to our procession with similar shining doors. As we pass by the Lama Sioux, we look up and see an inscription in Old Persian that reads, A great god is Ahura Mazda who created this earth who created yonder sky, who created man, who created happiness for man, who made Xerxes king, one king of many, one lord of many. I am Xerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of lands containing many kinds of men, king of this great earth far and wide, son of King Darius in Achaemenid. Thus proclaims Xerxes the king, by the favor of Ahura Mazda, I built this gateway of all nations. I built many other beautiful things in Persia. I built them, and my father built them. All beautiful things we built, we have built by the favor of Ahura Mazda. Thus proclaims Xerxes the king, May Ahura Mazda protect me from harm, and this land, and whatever was built by me as well as that which has been built by my father. 
This is all pretty typical of Xerxes' inscriptions. A bit of preamble about Ahura Mazda, his titles, his lineage, and a declaration that the building or inscription were ordained by the god and a continuation of Darius's own building. Of course, these inscriptions pull from a series of stock phrases repeated throughout the royal messages, but it is telling that one of those stock phrases is that Xerxes saw his building projects as an extension of his father's efforts. There is definitely a sense that this is still Darius's empire, more than a decade after the great usurper's passing. We pass through the gateway itself and might catch a glimpse of the rooms on either side, primarily a way to access the top of the structure. We have the option to pass straight through the gate, continuing east to the wide-open emptiness of the northern terrace. But instead, we turn right and head through another exit on the Gate of All Nations to the south. When we exit that final portico, we would be facing an expanded form of the Apadana. Not only are we faced with the towering columns of Darius's reception hall, but it now features intricate artwork that it is best known for. The bas-reliefs of tribute-bearers and soldiers along the staircases up to the hall, and the reliefs of a court scene between each staircase were added to the east and west by Xerxes, as well as a wall of glazed bricks with yet another inscription. The great king Xerxes says, By the grace of Ahura Mazda, much that had been ordered by King Darius my father was well. It was also by the grace of Ahura Mazda that I completed these works and made it excellent. May Ahura Mazda and the gods protect me and my kingdom. The Apadana abuts the western wall of the complex, but if we pass through, straight to the south, we'd find the finished form of Darius's palace called the Tassara. I described most of it in episode 30, but Xerxes added the finishing touches, including one corner of the support structure with another inscription very similar to the one on the Gate of All Nations, for our hypothetical purposes, and probably the reality for all but the closest guests to the king, we do not pass south from the Apadana to the Tassara. Instead, we go down the eastern stairs and find ourselves with open space further east, but a massive building complex to the south that was entirely absent in Darius's time. We would enter this section through a columned entrance hall. To our left, the east, was a doorway that led into a winding hall, which we'll ignore for now. Once through the grand entrance, we enter into a small courtyard. On the western side is a doorway that leads into a corridor and several small rooms. Continuing straight ahead, we enter a larger courtyard, containing a pair of freestanding buildings, and facing another large structure that connects to the building to the east. On the western side of this large space is another doorway through a small columned hall that enters into yet another open courtyard. We are now just south of the Apadana again, in a courtyard that connects that great hall, Darius's palace, and the rooms we just passed through. This is all Xerxes' palace, or the Hadish, the dwelling place. The largest room in the palace still awaits us to the south once again. This is a smaller reception hall than the Apadana, 
lined with 36 columns and flanked with three rooms on either side. This is the only room so far with a clear purpose. If we were to pass all the way through Xerxes' throne room and out the rear door, we would enter the southernmost structure I mentioned before. This was a series of small chambers connected by open-air hallways running up the center and perimeter of the building. Under Darius, this would have been the main access point to the terrace, but Xerxes effectively blocked that off with this building to funnel everyone through the gate of all nations. This is usually called the Southern Storerooms, mostly for want of a better name. These small chambers were at the back of the palace and were probably used for storage, but equally could have been used as servants' or soldiers' quarters. If we wander the halls of these storage rooms, we'd inevitably be spit back out onto the terrace in the west, or find our way east into the final part of the palace structure. We are now on the far southern side of the same building that I mentioned earlier with the winding hallways. This building is usually called the Harem. In reality, that name is inaccurate. Hopefully, if you're this far into the show, I've already made it clear that Persian kings did not isolate their huge collection of wives under a form of pseudo-house arrest in one part of the palace. Persian women could dine, travel, and converse with their male counterparts, or without them, in their own palaces and estates. In all likelihood, the so-called harem was just general living quarters in this part of the palace, either for men or women associated with the royal family, while the king himself took up residence in the tassara designed by Darius. This whole complex is full of small inscriptions and typical Achaemenid bas-reliefs depicting the king, his courtiers, marching soldiers, lions, Lama Su, and the winged Faravahar. In its prime, it would have been even more richly decorated, with all of these reliefs painted in detail, and red paint covering the columns from floor to ceiling. Interestingly, one of the harem buildings has been reconstructed to serve as the archaeological site's museum. It may seem weird that I have to write off much of the palace as, we aren't sure what this room was for, or just skip over small side rooms entirely, but that's just the way it is. Not only are we dealing with all of the usual problems for a site abandoned for 2100 years, where buildings collapsed, perishable materials rotted away, and were left with the stones and foundations, but the palace is horribly damaged. Try as I might, the wars with Greece are an inescapable feature of Achaemenid history, and 140 years after Xerxes' time, those wars would come home and burn this palace to the ground. What we cannot possibly know from the remains as they exist today is the detail of the most perishable and precious artwork. We know from authors like Diodorus Siculus and Plutarch that Persepolis was resplendent in precious metals, gilding, and statues of the great kings. We know from traces of pigment on the walls that the dull limestone would have been painted bright colors. We know from traces of canals and a myriad of ancient descriptions and administrative documents that the palace was irrigated and filled with lush plant life. 
And finally, we know from the precedent of Darius's inscription at Susa and the records of the Persepolis archives that craftsmen and materials from across the empire were used to design, build, and decorate these palaces. None of this has survived. Anything of movable or meltable value was hauled off by the Hellenistic conquerors, and wood, tapestries, and carpets either burned or decayed with time. Presented separately, the main buildings of Persepolis seem a little slapdash, but together they actually form a clear processional route that filters people out by level of importance and familiarity with the royal family. You ascend the external stairs from the plain and everyone is forced into the Gate of All Nations, which has a southbound turn inside the gateway to funnel everyone toward the Apadana and up the northern steps into the audience hall. The Tassara, Darius's winter palace, is right on the far side of the Apadana, so the king could enter or exit from the back. The eastern Apadana stairs direct the flow of nobles into the new palace complex, either into the courtyard or to the residential section. Finally, the courtyards and side rooms of this entry area funnel traffic further into the palace's throne room on the southwestern side of the complex. Everything is designed to facilitate a royal parade. Everything except the last building. One of the first structures completed at Persepolis was, as I said, the Treasury, a small administrative building in the southeastern corner. Xerxes doubled the building's size by expanding it further to the north with two large chambers and a few smaller rooms with a courtyard on the western edge of the terrace. These two large chambers are the rooms that lend this building its name, the Treasury. They are the chambers where tax revenue and war booty were taken and stored in the imperial heartland. In Xerxes' time, they may have been relatively sparsely furnished, given that they were new. But we know that everything from purple-dyed Tyrian cloth to stolen statues of Greek gods were brought to these rooms and stored alongside rations, precious metals, and rare goods from across the empire. When Alexander the Great's forces reached Persepolis, these were the rooms they looted. Xerxes' building projects filled up the southern half of the terrace, leaving little to no room for expansion in that direction. But Persepolis was by no means a finished project. By the end of his reign, the foundations were probably already laid for projects that would be completed by his son and successor, Artaxerxes I. Most significantly, the famous Hall of a Hundred Columns was probably beginning to take shape just north of the treasury, and the final touches were being put on the defensive walls. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. 
It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. One thing that should start to be apparent when describing these palace complexes, be it Pasargadai back in Cyrus's reign, Susa under Darius, or the ever-growing behemoth of Persepolis, is that calling them capital cities is probably extraordinarily inaccurate. That is the term we often apply to them, and it's how the Greeks and Romans perceived them in their very city-state-focused part of the world. But none of the Achaemenid capitals in southwestern Iran were really cities in the proper sense of the word. These are palaces, with living quarters for the king, his family, a few nobles at any given time, and the requisite servants. There are not many full-time residents, marketplaces, workshops, merchants, or any of the usual people and classes that make up an urban area in Babylon, Ecbatana, Memphis, Sardis, Athens, or even many smaller cities. There's not even really anywhere to identify as the homes of the staff and retinue needed to support everything surrounding the king when he was in residence. Now, this isn't all that unusual. Many of the major cities of the ancient world had a hilltop citadel or terrace, which the Greeks called an acropolis, with palaces and public buildings. Persepolis fits that mold to a T. That area was usually surrounded by what we think of as the actual city. The thing is, there's just not much evidence to support that at the Persian palace complexes. Even Susa, which had been an important Elamite city for more than 3,000 years at this point, was seemingly underpopulated and underdeveloped in Achaemenid times. Yet the records themselves don't seem to support that. The Persepolis archive tablets record workmen, farmers, nobles, and soldiers passing through and living at Persepolis, and traveling to and from other cities in the region 
including Pasargadai and Susa. Part of this was doubtlessly supported by other small towns in the Persepolis region, many of which are recorded in the archives. However, a large number of people were probably housed in the plain surrounding the complex. Different ideas have been put forth to explain this. Some have suggested extremely perishable or temporary structures made from wood, reed, or mud, which could have been used as the basic building blocks. But structures like that, even very perishable ones or very simple ones, usually leave a foundation mark in the landscape. Others have suggested that the mobile nature of the royal court meant that most of the support staff just pitched their tents in the surrounding area for the season and then moved on with the great king in his cycle from Susa to Babylon to Ecbatana to Persepolis to Susa and so on every year. Admittedly, the lack of any evidence to support permanent structures in the plain does support the tent theory, but many people, especially Persian and Iranian people, are loath to accept that the royal court of one of the greatest empires in the world lived primarily in tents in the shadow of monumental palaces. To that I say, you have the wrong idea of a tent. These are not the kind of short-term dwellings that we take camping or an ancient soldier sheltered under during a campaign. We should think more like something used by other great empires in history. Something a lot closer to a yurt, often seen in the nomadic peoples of the steppe, including several great conquering cultures. These were semi-permanent but extremely mobile living spaces that would house bedding, furniture, fires, and all of the necessities and creature comforts of a complex daily life. The yurt is probably the best example, though most of history documents these structures as a feature of steppe life, and similar tents were used in Iran and Central Asia. These felted and latticed structures would have been the Achaemenids' mobile city of courtiers and support staff for the great kings. That's not to say there were no people who acted as year-round fixtures and residents of Persepolis. In Darius's time, one of these people would certainly have been Pharnaces, or Parnaka, as he is recorded in the Fortification Archive. Darius's uncle, who served as the head of the Persepolis administration, is sometimes called a mayor of the palace or the chief economic officer. He was the father of Artabazus, who managed to escape from Greece and became the satrap Phrygia. With his son off in Anatolia, Pharnaces was succeeded by a man called Espathenes. He was the son of Prixaspes, who supposedly tried to out Bardia and Gomata, according to Herodotus. The Achaemenid nobility, even as it branches out generation after generation, is still this very closely knit circle of people tied to Cyrus and Darius. Aspathenes seems to have ascended into Darius's inner circle over the course of his reign, and is shown as the royal bow-bearer on Darius's tomb, and as the mayor of the palace in Persepolis. He had a son, called Prexaspes, who served in the navy during the Greek invasion, 
But neither this Prixaspes or anyone else emerges as the obvious successor back in Parsa during the later parts of Xerxes' reign. Other regular faces at Persepolis would have been the high-ranking local administrators who were in charge of towns and estates in the area which provided most of the support infrastructure for the complex. Under Xerxes, one of the highest-ranking men in these positions was a Babylonian scribe called Sharbalada. He appears regularly in the Treasury Archive tablets, with the titles Treasurer at Persepolis and Scribe Who Writes on Leather. The first is obvious enough, but the second indicates his role as someone who was in charge of maintaining and copying the Aramaic documents written on perishable materials, which were becoming increasingly important. Sharbalada was a highly placed official. He received three times the rations for a normal scribe and six times the rations of his own servants, and double that in wine. These were probably not just for his own consumption, but either for his household, including undocumented women, children, and slaves, or intended to be sold or traded for other products. However, Sharbalada and his staff were not working directly in the treasury at Persepolis, even if they reported to the highest-ranking officials in the palace complex. Instead, they traveled back and forth from a storehouse in a village called Rakan that supported operations for the main treasury. Sharbalada is the rare example of a person whose day-to-day -day life can almost be pieced together from our limited evidence of life in Achaemenid Parsa, and an even rarer example of a specific person we can tie to the increasing importance of scribes who write on leather, who inadvertently contributed to the loss of those same records. Of course, like anything else in the Treasury Archive, our knowledge of Sharbalada is fragmentary. He may or may not have still been sending supplies to and from his home base in Rakan at the end of Xerxes' reign, and he may or may not have lived to see Artaxerxes I's own building projects unfold. Eventually, we will return to Persepolis to see the next phase of construction, but for now we turn to the infinitely better documented people at Persepolis and all of the other royal capitals. Amestris, Darius, Artaxerxes, and the family of the great king Xerxes. Until then, you can find more information about this podcast at historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you can see things like my bibliography, the Achaemenid royal family tree, and the support page for this podcast. That includes ways to financially support the podcast, like one-time payments, affiliate links, and most importantly, our Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. There you'll find monthly subscriptions that get you things like ad-free listening and bonus episodes. You can also support my work by heading over to the Oldest Stories podcast on September 8th to catch me talking about the Elamites for a few weeks. Of course, the best ways to support are always free, and that includes just telling someone about this show. Spread the word, 
Share it on social media, where you can find me as History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or just History of Persia on Twitter. You can also leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever your platform of choice is. I always appreciate hearing your feedback. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.